Hello and welcome from me, Patrick Bishop, to this week's big interview. Today we've got some more material from our trip to Ukraine. Firstly, we visited a child psychiatry centre just outside Kiev on the outskirts of the city where children are receiving treatment for war trauma. There we met Oksana, the director of the children's club, which is called Positive, and two of the club's members, 12-year-old Nastya and 15-year-old Sofia, told us about their experiences and about the club. Right, so we've arrived at a destination to the southwest of Kiev, brought here by Taras, our fixer, uh, and we're about to meet the director of the center, and she will explain what she does. I am the director of the club, which name is Positive, and it is a part of this center of the of rehabilitation of different uh, kinds of people but my club works uh, specifically with children of the soldiers or fighters and of relocated people so basically with children and women okay so we're going to meet one of those children now so Nastia hello. hello nice to meet you so can you tell us a little bit about where you come from and why you've come to the club I'm from village Belohorodka and I uh, visit this club because it's a joyful atmosphere here, it's, it's, it's funny here and uh, I can spend time in a, in a lucky atmosphere. Are you happy to talk a little bit about your experiences at the start of the full-scale invasion last year and what happened in your village? So on the 24th of February last year, I woke up as usually in the morning and when I went to the kitchen I saw my mom, she was crying and she told me that the war started. On the same day my father was inscripted, was sent to the, to the front line and we stayed at home, me, my mom and my brother and on the 12th of March there was a shelling with the great missiles from Buzova village and our house was damaged as well, the glasses were broken, so we started to pack our luggage to leave from there because the shelling didn't stop and there were incoming shelling in the vicinity. So we left and we went to the place of my grandmother in Cherkasy region where we spent one month and a half. Afterwards, we came back uh, here in July. So the first person died already on the first day of the war. He, it was a, an older guy from Kiev who stayed in our village. Can I ask, where are your parents now? Are they, are they still are they in the area with you? Or when, when do you see your parents? Both parents are here. My father, uh, my my father is here, but from time to time he goes on shifts uh, as a military person. Actually, he's uh, he was uh, he went to the to to, to fight uh, in 2014. And since that time, it's Oksana, Oksana's words, yes, since that time, uh, this family, they are our clients. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about how being in that experience of the shelling made you feel? I mean, you and your brother. 
What was your experience? When it happened, uh, we slept. Uh, so mom, my mother was the first who, hear, who heard the sound of the missiles. And we woke up. My younger brother also was uh, also slept. So w- when he w- woke up, he was very scared and he didn't speak for a week after that. But he was younger than one year then. So maybe not. She means not speaking, but just some communication, like some. Yeah. yeah. So so he was silent for a week. Let's say. So uh, when it started. My father first took uh, my younger brother on arms, on his arms, and we fall down on the ground. Uh, th- there were uh, terrible explosions, and the plaster, the stucco, was falling from the ceiling, from the walls. Our mouths uh, were full of dust. So uh, sitting next to Anastasia is Oksana, who's in charge of the group of children here. Uh, She's been working with them since the beginning of the of the war. And Oksana, I would like to ask you, what are the main traumas that you see in these children? And what is your approach for trying to prepare them for the next phase of their life? So very often children are stressed and very scared after the shellings. Some of them uh, cannot uh, speak, like uh, younger brother of Nastya. They have a panic attacks of panic. They are very scared, sleeping alone. So they ask parents to get them to the bed. And the parents also have the higher level of the trauma of the anxiety. So they anxiety about the children. They are afraid not to be in time to the shelter uh, when the shelling starts uh, or the air attack starts. And one of the recent events here uh, I had, it was a small boy, Sasha, from Vyshgorod. It's another city on the suburbs of Kiev. So they slept at night and uh, then there was a, an air attack. Uh, it was a Shahed attack, drone attack. So Sasha wanted to go to the toilet and when he was going to the toilet, some drone exploded. Uh, next to them and they just managed to squat uh, and uh, close their faces but they were uh, wounded to uh, Sasha was wounded to his back to his shoulder and his arm uh, and and the ear and uh, he was taken to the hospital to the children hospital uh, in Kiev where Oksana's husband is a surgeon and he gave him the first uh, medical treatment and asked Oksana to come and to help him with his, uh, because he was, he was extremely, uh, extremely stressed and uh, scared. Uh, yeah. Oksana, can I ask you a follow-up question, which is, if the war ended today, how long do you think it would take before these children would begin to get over the trauma they've suffered and for their behavior to return to something like what you would expect normal behavior to be for children of their age. So our children will never be like other normal children in, in the countries where they don't have any military conflict. So uh, they're normal, but uh, they have some specific experience which make uh, them stronger than other children of their age. 
And uh, here we have children who who saw how Russians were torturing the father, for example. It's, it's a family from Kupiansk. And uh, so we taught them to be uh, durable for stress. And they are durable for stress. They are older than they are, actually. Often they are calming down their parents. So, so they ask them not to be so uh, stressed, not to be afraid. They ask the parents to uh, to trust in, in our victory. Oksana calls it visualization of the victory, what will happen when, when we have, will have the victory. Yeah. So our children in our center, in our club, they are volunteers. They withdraw some paints, some paintings which we sell on the special markets uh, for for support of uh, Ukrainian army and uh, we also children and their mothers are weaving nets for soldiers and also they are a war that granting the interview it's also a, f- a kind of of uh, support for the country for the army it's a informational front line that's why they are coming here on saturdays on sundays they spend here their uh, the weekends they know that in this way they help their parents they they, they fathers and all and all of defenders of our country it's fascinating isn't it that we we were speaking yesterday to us that um of course war is a bad thing per se but some good things can come out of it and it's interesting you say some of the children are through the therapy of people like Oksana are actually stronger mentally and are able to assist their parents I mean that's very counterintuitive isn't it but it's a wonderful thing and I could you just make that point to Oksana so I always teach my children the children who attend this we have some special trainings some special exercises i teach them to think in a positive way the name of our center is of our club is positive so i teach them these skills so for example uh, if they are sad that their brothers or sisters left the country and they are alone we are trying to find the positive side of this uh, phenomenon for, for example we note that they are in in a safety place they are not uh, killed by russians they, they are not raped by russians because such cases happened here as well so it is like our way of thinking to be and it, it's uh, something which helps us to become stronger just last last thought it seems to have worked in the case of Nastia, because she is remarkably upbeat in her demeanor to us, the way she seems to us. So can you tell her that? And thank you for speaking to us. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm a Ukrainian girl. Sophia, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about how long you've been coming to the club here? but also your first experience of conflict and maybe a reason why the club was even more important to you. I am visiting this club since I was five years old. And uh, when the war started, it was very stressful. It was very hard for me. So I come here just to relax and not to think about bad things which are happening. 
Sofia is one of these children who support their parents very much. Uh, and when her mother, when her mother has some depressive mood, uh, Sofia always helps her, and she asks her not to be so scared to to think about. Think in a positive way. By the way, Sofia always left the country uh, when the full-scale invasion happened. The father asked them to leave the country, so they went to Poland. So for half a year they left for Poland, and then they came back when the situation got calmer here. Uh, Sofia, there are obviously girls of your age on the other side of the line in Russia. Do you have any feelings about them? What, what do you imagine goes on in their heads? Basically, what do you think about young girls in Russia of your age? What do you think they're thinking? Some of them uh, think that uh, it, like, uh, it, it's good for us, but some of them uh, realize that it's the uh, worst situation that we can imagine in our life. So could you see a time when you might be friends with some of those Russian women? I have five five girls from Russia and uh, my uh, family also from Russia, my uh, dad family. And I have cousins in Russia. So um, from start it was... Uh, it was uh, so, on the very beginning, my Russian relatives were supporting us on the very beginning of the full-scale invasion, but uh, later, in around four months, they started to say that it's uh, it's good for us, it's, uh, that, that Russians are saving them, that Russians are liberating them, and uh, from this point, they started to quarrel and uh, they started to shout at us and uh, now we don't, uh, we, don't, we don't speak to each other anymore. Sofia, are you optimistic about the future for Ukraine as a nation, that it will be secure in the future and with no interference from Russia? Are you hopeful for your country? I'm very hopeful for my country and I, I believe that situation I believe it will be it will be well. The situation will improve soon. Okay, well that's you were very kind to talk to us. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, we're going to take a quick break there. Coming up is a moving interview with Oleg, a Butcher resident who told us about the harrowing experience of his time there during its occupation by Russian forces. Interesting day so far with our fixer Taras. Um, first of all, he took us to the south of Kiev, uh, where we we met two children, Nastia and Sofia, uh, and also the child psychologist Oksana Slepova. Um, it was very moving, actually, to see the kind of fortitude of the girls and and what they'd been through. Uh, they seemed pretty determined, but they, you could also see they were quite close to tears. Uh, when they were talking about some of the experiences that they've gone through, particularly uh, Nastia's experience with the shelling. Anyway, we moved on from there and we drove on a really fascinating trip where we are now eating uh, or about to eat in a fish restaurant in Bucha. Uh, and on the way, we stopped next to uh, a row of armored personnel carriers and Russian tanks that had been knocked out as they were trying to advance on Kyiv. Quite a famous incident in the war, actually. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So 
It was one of the famous uh, defeated of Russian heavy weapon weaponry. There were two tank battles in uh, in the vicinity of Bucha. One took place on the Vokzalna street, and uh, there were some videos on uh, YouTube showing the destroyed Russian tanks and uh, armored vehicles. And the less known is uh, was the battle on the road uh, from Bucha to Kapitanivka, and there were around. Uh, around 20 vehicles like also APCs and uh, tanks uh, smaller tanks uh, like a reconnaissance tank was between them as well so uh, all of them were destroyed by uh, artillery fire and by tank fire Ukrainian tanks and I visited this place a uh, couple of weeks after the accident and uh, I saw there were still bodies of Russian soldiers sitting and laying in the vehicles and some parts of human limbs like ribs, uh, hands, uh, legs, so horrific uh, view. But uh, now uh, only few cars remain there because the majority of uh, these uh, machines were removed, they were dismantled. I saw Ukrainian soldiers dismantling these vehicles, taking some parts to use it to live their the second life. Also, I found uh, the board book of a Russian officer with the list of these soldiers. They all of them were from Buratia. They were Buratian soldiers, mostly. At first we were burying them in, in the yard uh, next to the houses on the stadium. But later we had to dig them out and to rebury them on the cemetery. So why were they being buried in the stadium in the first place? So people were laying uh, just on the streets because Russians First, they didn't allow to bury people, and uh, there were people who, our peoples from here, who used to, to they asked Russians personally and, and, and received personal allowance to bury people. So they uh, buried around 12 people, a friend of Oleg, until uh, one of them was cooperating with the Ukrainian army and Russians, it, it, it was a, he was a driver, so Russians killed him. And his friend Volodya, it's a tall man living next to Oleg, he wasn't killed, uh, but the Russians took off his clothes, they were torturing him for many hours, and they were shooting over his head. There is a construction site here, so people were buried between this construction site and the stadium. So there is another mass grave near the church. People who tried to bury corpses on the cemetery were shot down by Russians. So we're just coming into the cemetery now. Lots of yellow and blue flags everywhere. So, uh, just after the liberation of Bucha, one week and a half, uh, all this road, all this uh, street was uh, full of coffins. And when they were burying them here, uh, people, witnesses came 
uh, and they told the stories how these people were killed and it was so awful so so ter ter terrifying stories that I couldn't bear the, I, I could bear three funerals like that uh, and other guys who were uh, digging who were burying people they told uh, like look you, you just drink with us drink some some uh, drink some alcohol with us and it will be easier for you so he drank a, a, a bit and it it, it, it uh, got even worse for him so he told no no I, I will not uh, I will not uh, do that uh, anymore so after three burials here he, he, he left uh, this group I was helping my uh, friend it was a woman who fed cats and uh, she asked me to help her with bringing some food for, for these cats. So I, we were going two of us. We we just uh, went to to a place. We when we went out from the corner, and we saw a parat rushed paratrooper. And with my uh, sight, I saw the inscription on the wall: uh, "We are shooting without warning." Обычно людина. So uh, usually when you see such a warning that be careful, it's a high electric tension or something like that, you don't uh, mind, you, you, you don't pay attention to this, uh, to these inscriptions. But this time his nephew was killed by Russians and uh, it was very easy to die just getting into this situation. He would so I then I told this woman just take these bags and go away not asking anything not telling anything just go away and she took these bags and she went further and this Russian paratrooper started to shout to me and it was very confused because first of all he cried he shouted to me simultaneously stay there or and to me, uh, and it was in, in, it was mixed with uh, a lot of obscenic lexics, which I never heard before. So I started to move toward towards him, but it was a moment when there are such moments when you realize that you will die. Basically, we we know that we will die at some point, some day, but uh, now you realize that you will die now on this very street this damaged by uh, shrapnel and uh, shelling and the last thing which, which you will see in your life it will be this angry face of this uh, sergeant and uh, at this point the protest grows up inside of you yeah. so i started my way to him and uh, he was looking watching at me as a or a constrictor, it's a snake, snake. and the rabbit. Uh, he didn't speak uh, anything more, but uh, I realized that uh, it will finish and well, he will make me to lay down on the ground, my face to the ground, and uh, most uh, likely he will kill me. There were two other, at least two uh, corpses were laying on the right side of him. So, yeah. So, uh, as I uh, came closer to him, he put his Kalashnikov, his Kalashnikov lower, 
And at this moment, I realized, I realized because I was praying always before I was leaving my house. I, I was sometimes I was praying every minute, asking God to help me to survive. But maybe it's because I prayed, so it was just a chance for me. As he put his Kalashnikov down uh, lower, I saw that there is a gate in this market. And I used this opportunity. I, I just rushed to this uh, opened gate, and I I realized that he will shoot at me, and he shot at me. And it's very it's very specific feeling when you understand that now some of these bullets will get through your body, and uh, it was like cold chill chill wall behind of me, a chill deep space behind me. I had cold uh, back of my head and of, he was shooting, but he didn't hit. He didn't hit me uh, only because of one reason. It's not because he was a bad warrior he, and he wasn't drunk. I, I saw that he wasn't drunk, but it's only one reason, because Christ resurrected, Jesus Christ resurrected. Uh, also, Oleg said, uh, maybe I will. I forgot to translate you. So uh, when we was, uh, he was mentioning this uh, madness here. Yeah. He told that it was like unreal world here. Uh, there were there were battles just on the street of my town. There were helicopters, planes, tanks. This was battle full scale. Everything was like upside down. There was a uh, popular topic of Russian propaganda that uh, they were trying to, they were contested this uh, the idea that Russian soldiers killed a lot of people here. So they were claiming that, look, there were no corpses on the streets for all the time of the occupation. But as soon as Russian soldiers, a lot of killed people were found uh, in the city. How could it happen? And actually the propaganda works very well, much better than ours. But I can witness, I can respond on, the, on this, that for the time of the occupation, if you, the Bucha is a very big city actually. It's three stops of the electric train, the suburb. So any place you choose in Bucha, you stay here and you will start your trip, you will meet one, two, five, people killed, uh, sometimes 30, people, 30 corpses, and some of them were dragged out of the way, uh, some were aside, but whenever you would go in Bucha, you would always find dead people on the streets, laying on the streets. So it's just before midnight on Sunday, the 13th of August. And as you can probably hear from the chugging of the train, we're leaving Kiev after a pretty eventful day, I must say. We got up early-ish, uh, met our fixer, Taras Shemeko, quite a character himself. And uh, one of the first things he said to me is, uh, I hope you don't mind driving. Well, we've been prepared even before we came to Kiev that driving in Kiev was a bit of a risk. In fact, driving in Ukraine generally was tricky. But as Taras said to me, I'm not sure I trust myself. I've only just passed my test. I thought it wouldn't be a bad idea. So I took the wheel and we headed down to the southwest of 
to meet an extraordinary woman, actually, a child psychologist who ran a club in a facility uh, down there who look after traumatized Ukrainian children. We also met some of the children. It's very moving speaking to them about what they'd been through. One of them had been shelled, um, actually came from a, a village quite close to where we were that had been attacked by the Russians in the early stages of the war last year and was uh, severely traumatized as a result. Uh, and another one, relatively similar situation, dad had been away fighting on and off ever since 2014. And from that situation, we moved on to Bucha, the infamous uh, site of the Russian atrocities, again going back to March and April of 2022. And on the way, we actually passed the site of and stopped at uh, the place where that Russian armored column had been destroyed and you could still see the burnt out tanks and Taras was telling us that he'd actually passed that column not long after it was taken out on his way back to Bucha after it had been liberated and you could still see the body parts of the people in those various armored cars they were completely shattered one tank turret had been uh, so badly hit that it had been blown completely off the rest of the tank. And from there we went into Butcher and met a, quite a remarkable man actually, a contact of uh, Taras's, in fact one of his neighbors and friends. It's an extraordinary character who we really dubbed the grave digger. And his job during the uh, Russian occupation was to help bury a number of the dead who the Russians had just left literally lying in the street. And when we asked him how many he said, well, the official number was 1,500, but in his view, up to 3,500, and that's out of a population of 40,000, uh, were killed, or at least died as a result of neglect and starvation during the Russian occupation. So pretty horrific casualty figures. And when we got to the graveyard, um, where he had actually helped to bury some of those poor people who'd lost their lives, Patrick asked him uh, a couple of very interesting questions, actually. Well, what did he think of the Soviet Union, uh, given that he was old enough to remember? I would estimate his age definitely in the 70s, maybe in his 80s. He said, well, as a Christian, he didn't like the Soviet Union. There was no freedom for people like him, no kind of sense of personal freedom, of freedom of expression, as he put it. Uh, and therefore, he didn't, um, you know, he didn't long for it in any sense. He was glad to see the back of it. But the other thing Patrick asked him is whether he, uh, what he felt about Russians after having gone through the appalling um, experience of the occupation, including um, almost being shot himself. Uh, his nephew was killed by the Russians. And his response was really remarkable, actually. He said, well, uh, I can tell you this, not all Russians are bad people. There were bad people in Bucha. Uh, but in his opinion, they were in a minority, um, and there were instances of, uh, you know, good Russians in his view. Some of the paratroopers feeding a horse, which was kind of left to roam the streets of Bucha. Bucha, by the way, you know, I've got this image of a very sort of rural settlement on the outskirts of Kiev. Actually, it was a bit of a concrete jungle, a rather large dormitory town of high-rise blocks uh, that... Taras actually came from himself uh, and at the start of the occupation he was working with a journalist and therefore was separated from his family from almost a month. I mean a pretty horrific circumstances given that his wife and four-year-old daughter were in Bucha um, and getting increasingly cold uh, and neglected of course, no medical assistance and running out of food.
But just to go back to the gravedigger for a second, pretty remarkable that he had the generosity of spirit to say that, no, not all Russians were bad, and that as a result, there is some possibility for healing in the future. Okay, I'm going to sign off now. The train is going to trundle on through the night to Lviv, uh, when we'll be spending our last day in Ukraine. But I have to say, overall, it's been one hell of a trip, and we're all really pleased we came. Okay, that's all for this week. Please do join us on Friday when we take a look at the latest news, including the rumours that Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov has died and also answer all your questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.